You're not gonna say it Somebody should Let's talk about two time Let's talk about bum one, yeah Asking the questions That nobody could Like where are the bone dogs and Are they in harmony? Everybody. Welcome, welcome. Uh, well, we've got a, we've got some things to cover. We've got some ketchup to play. Ketchup, mustard, hot dog, bun. So, um, last we left, I was uh, making things in the crotch pot and uh, tested out two recipes. One was a white bean chili recipe and one was a Brussels sprout recipe. Um, and this was going to be the final countdown for my crock pot. Uh, am I going to get rid of it and never use it again? Or, you know, would I be convinced to go further down the rabbit hole? Uh, let's start with the Brussels sprouts. The Brussels sprouts were simple, which I appreciated, and did not involve cooking on the stove or any bullshit like that. So uh, it was a, you know, dump and forget recipe. Kind of like uh, my morning routine. So uh, I give this recipe a 5 out of 10. It was pretty good. They were totally edible. There was nothing bad about them. But they weren't as crispy as I would like a Brussels sprout to be. And it did take longer than just making them in the oven. Um, so, you know, I give it a 5 out of 10. And... Uh, while it's not, if every recipe I made was a 5 out of 10 in the crock pot, then it would probably not be something I was considering getting rid of. I'd probably be more inclined to think that this was my fault. You know, blame the victim, which is me. I'm the victim of my own shitty food. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it was one of the better things I've made in this crock pot. But, uh... That's not saying enough. How's that? The second recipe I made was the uh, white bean chili. Um, this I did not enjoy. I would probably put this as a 2 or 3 out of 10. Um, it was thin, and I, I felt like the spices in it still kind of tasted raw. They didn't taste like cooked the way I'd like. Also, it did require making uh, parts of it on the stove before putting it in the crock pot. Um, you know, usually when I make chili, I make it on the stove. And it takes like a couple hours, two to three hours. But, you know, the actual working time on it is probably 20 to 30 minutes. And then the rest of the time is just like letting everything cook down. Uh, basically, you put everything together and uh, bring it to a boil and then turn it down. Let it cook for about an hour with the lid on, then let it cook for an hour without the lid on to reduce, and you're done. Um, you've dirtied one pot, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not a quick thing to make, that's for damn sure. That's not like a come home at lunch and make it. But uh, it doesn't take like eight hours. So that one, that one didn't work for me. 
really. Um, I ate it because I just, you know, I, I've eaten some terrible shit. Most of the terrible shit I've made is stuff I've made. And I'm not sure if I eat the terrible food that I make to punish myself or because I feel bad about throwing food away or because I'm cheap. Um, you know, when you say these reasons out loud, they're all bad, right? These are not good reasons for, for eating a terrible tasting meal. Um, you know, it's not like I can't afford to throw away something I cooked. So like, you know, reason A of like, uh, punishing myself, that's obviously dumb because it's like, well, you know, you, you're punishing yourself for making food that you don't love, which is like, I mean, not eating it is also a punishment. So maybe not eating it is a better punishment. I mean, maybe there's part of me that feels like I'm like the kid who can't be told not to touch the stove. I got to touch the stove and then figure out why that's a bad idea. So, you know, definitely I'll say I made like some uh, chicken and rice something one time. Chicken. I don't even remember. Oh, I made a like a uh, Mexican lasagna type of recipe, but I made it with uh, ground chicken or turkey, um, which is totally flavorless. And it was horrible. And I just had to like dump a bunch of spices and sauces and stuff on it just to like plow through it. So that is not a mistake that I will make again. But uh, that's not to say that um, I would have made the mistake again if I hadn't eaten it. You know, I just made um, some pasta and I tried to use some tofu for the sauce and I got the wrong kind. And it just, it was very grainy and gross. Um, and I ate all of it. And I, I made it through. It wasn't like disgusting by the end, but I, I was definitely over it by the end. Um, and that's not a mistake I will make again. So maybe punishing myself makes sense. Feeling bad about throwing out food is like, it's sort of, I guess, a, a good, uh, I don't want to say aesthetic, a good ethic to have maybe, to not waste food. But I mean, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Maybe the part where I wasted it was the part where I screwed up cooking it. You know, like wasting food this way is not the same as uh, just not eating leftovers. Have you ever met one of these people who's like, I don't eat leftovers? Like, that's crazy. I'm like, how, how is that even possible? I always assume that these people are independently wealthy in some way. Um, or maybe they grew up eating a lot of leftovers and then they're like, you know what? I'm going to indulge myself by never doing that again. I'm never going back to the abusive relationship I have with leftovers. Personally, I find leftovers fine. Like, I don't, they don't taste worse to me most times, so whatever. So, like, not, not wasting food in general is a good thing, but, uh, you know, I'm not a wasteful person as far as food goes, so maybe I should cut myself some slack. It's not like punishing myself by eating it really does a whole lot for anyone, right? I mean, everyone's like, Americans waste so much food and da-da-da-da, but I'm like, I don't think I waste much food at all. Um, and I, I wonder, when people say, like, Americans waste so much food, I gotta believe that's not food that, like, they cooked poorly. 
and then are like, oh, this is fucking disgusting, and then get rid of it. I bet there was a lot of that happening early in pandemic. Based on the grocery store, I was like, okay, like, uh, you know, the five things that we all know how to cook are not here. You know, pasta, eggs, peanut butter, all gone. So I bet people are getting a little crazy trying some shit they really shouldn't. But what are you going to do? But yeah, um, you know, I guess maybe I should just, I think I just need to wrap up this crock pot and say, I've learned my lesson. And it's that the crock pot does not make food that I like. Um, whether or not it makes good or bad food is like a subjective thing, right? I can't objectively prove that all crock pot food is bad, nor do I think that all crock pot food is bad. But I think a cooking method that sort of, uh, relies on me finding exceptions to the rule is probably not a cooking method I should use. You know, I, I feel like with cooking, I'm not like a chef. I don't, I don't have like a high stakes situation for cooking. I don't have a like, cooking's not important to me per se. Um, so I don't know. I guess that uh, uh, a high percentage, a high likelihood of success is probably better for me than investing the time and money and food into something that uh, doesn't have a good like doesn't have a likely return on investment. You know, the other thing is like I make pasta on the stove, right, and make the sauce or whatever. Even when it's not great, it's not terrible. It's not like I hate it. I'm just like eh, I'm not really looking forward to that. Not really looking to plowing through all these Tupperware containers of that, but. It's doable, and it's not like, well, like, I'm never eating that again. Like, fuck it. Yeah, I might just take it, take off, uh, take a time off from that for the next <laughs> grocery store trip. So, uh, yeah, Crock-Pot, uh, not happening for me. I'm done with the Crock-Pot. D-U-N-E. Done. Dune. Am I the only person who does not care about Dune? the novel, or the movies. Um, I tried to read Dune, and it was like I was learning about the history of a specific sword or something and was like, oh, this is not for me. I do not care about this kind of stuff. Like, I, I don't understand. This is like a, a personality thing. I just don't understand making up a fictional history of like an object like a sword. Because I'm like, uh, you know, there's like real life objects that have pretty interesting history. So why are we making up a fake object with a fake history? And like, can a made up fictional history of an object be interesting? Because it could be anything. There's no like regulation of what is and isn't possible for a fictional object. So like, who gives a shit? I mean, you could just say it shoots lasers. Like, who cares? It's a light, a lightsaber. You know, like, the original Star Wars movies were smart. I don't even think the later ones really did. But they were just sort of like, here's a lightsaber. It's a laser sword. <laughs> the end. The, you know, they didn't really talk about, like, how a lightsaber works. Um, and I think that was for the best. Because it was like, eh, let's not obsess over... Those first movies definitely had a good, uh, 
good balance of like, let's have some weird shit in here, but let's not make that the focus. Let's not go crazy talking about this stuff. You know, eh. I'm not, I'm not crazy about talking about the history. Less history, more mystery for Star Wars, please. One of the first things I looked up on the internet when I was a kid was uh, how to make a lightsaber. Once I realized that like Google was searchable and then I was like, or not Google, I mean, it was probably Ask Jeeves or some shit. But, uh, you know, it was uh, starting to see like, wow, you can look up a lot of stuff on here. In theory, anything, if some, maybe someone out there has built a lightsaber and I just haven't heard about it. So, you know, I looked it up and I found a lot of huge nerds who had made basically, uh, you know, like replicas with washers and stuff of the handle, but not a like functioning laser sword, as I'm sure is very, very surprising. Um, so there you go. That's that's the wrap up of the crockpot debacle, the crockbacle. Um I'm going to figure out something to either reuse or destroy the crockpot. So stay tuned for that excitingness. Maybe that'll be our big episode 500 <laughs> celebration. I'll throw a crockpot out the window and then we'll just move on. We'll just have another normal episode that's not very exciting. Maybe I should do like the anti 500. You know, I had, these are the two ideas I've had. One idea was to take an epic road trip and broadcast from all of the 48 uh, mainland United States. So, you know, at least have a short snippet from each of the states, um, which would be pretty... Well, I guess it'd be interesting for me. I don't know if that's actually something anyone wants to listen to, but, uh, you know, fuck it. I'm mostly doing this for me, not for you, so let's do something I care about. And then a uh, slightly lower scale, lower key project is, uh, uh, I guess I could just basically uh, throw a crock pot out, break a crock pot. <laughs> oh, the more I say it out loud, the more I like this idea, the more I want to like hype it up, you know, coming, coming soon to helpful snowman radio, breaking of the crock pot. And that's the, you know, the big thing. And, you know, maybe it won't even be an epic destruction. I just kind of lightly tap it with a hammer until the, the pot part breaks. And then I'm like, well, I guess that's done. I'm going to cut this cord and strip it for the copper wire. Been uh, considering that. We're throwing out a vacuum. And I was like, you know, I could strip this cord and keep the copper wire. And then uh, every time I throw out something, I'll strip the wire and keep the copper and eventually sell it back and probably make eight dollars <laughs> maybe nine <laughs> Ooh. so yeah i guess bank on that tell your friends destruction of the crock pot is coming up episode 500 you're not going to want to miss this epic event i i just the more i talk about it the more i like the idea of the epic event of episode 500 this milestone being marked by something stupid that's not even a big deal that most people don't even want okay uh next thing yours truly 
has been quoted in an academic journal article. Yes. Yes. Uh, while we all, you know, we all acknowledge and would love to, you know, talk about how great it is that friend of the show, Ian, by the way, has successfully defended his PhD dissertation. I think that's the terminology. Um, so he's basically a PhD now. And, uh, you know, while all of my siblings have a PhD or a doctorate or whatever, I don't know. I don't exactly know the terms. Um, all of these things are, you know, big academic achievements. And uh, every one of them deserves their time in the spotlight. And now is Pete's time. Because <laughs> he was quoted in an academic journal. Uh, so this is a study. Let me just see what the title of this study is. Uh, the Goodreads Classics, a computational study of readers, Amazon, and crowdsourced amateur criticism. I'm going to give you one guess of which of these three I belong in. Uh, readers, Amazon, and crowdsourced amateur criticism. <laughs> amateur? How dare you? How dare you? Um, I got a note on Goodreads quite a while ago because they were writing a paper on classics. And they wanted to quote one of my reviews um, for this thing. I think I talked about that on this show before. Maybe I even read the review. It was for Phantom of the Opera. And so uh, the paper has come out. Um, let me see if I can back up to a place that makes sense. Okay. I'm going to just read through some of this until we get to my part. And so maybe this will be something that uh, makes sense. The classics are clearly... Okay, this is a section called The Classics Industry, Goodreads Users. The classics are clearly perpetuated by many powerful institutions as well as the market economy. When Goodreads users shelve, rate, and review classics, they contribute to this system and help sustain it. Making this point for forcefully, Murray argues, the Goodreads website's beguiling abundance of actual reader responses to books has obscured for scholars the limited extent to which users either understand or it can influence its algorithmic operations, leading to overblown claims of readerly empowerment. Compelling evidence of reading's contemporary resilience and freely available research archive, though it may be, Goodreads is above all else a node in platform capitalism. What? Goodreads is indeed, quote, a node in platform capitalism. I'm going to start calling this show that. I need to write this down. I have like 50 pens over here. Um, helpful snowman. Colon. A node in platform capitalism. Uh, Goodreads is indeed a node in platform capitalism. But we believe it is important to engage with how beguiling Goodreads reviews are and how empowering the platform can feel for some Goodreads users. In uh, some person's study of amateur creativity on the internet, she argues that it is not possible to, quote, make a blanket case for or against the emancipatory potential of participatory culture on the internet. Jesus Christ. Is this the kind of... Okay. 
Instead, this person suggests thinking of the public sphere as, quote, an always already commercialized, industrialized, and pluralized space. Does any of this mumbo jumbo, I mean, this is like crazy. Uh, we believe this framing is helpful for teasing out how Goodreads users sometimes explicitly resist Goodreads and produce remarkably interesting amateur criticism, all while being exploited by Goodreads. One of the most fitting metaphorical representations of this ironic tension manifests when Goodreads users bash the classics because in doing so, they simultaneously reject and reinforce books as classics in the same stroke. The topic that we have labeled Goodreads user criticism, which includes words like stars, give, and rating, picks up on a common rhetorical trope, the justification of a user's rating for a given text, and it includes a significant amount of classics bashing. We find that Goodreads reviews that rank highly for this topic are, overall, more likely to rate a text negatively. Negative ratings seem to demand lengthy, reflexive justifications in their accompanying reviews. For example, a Goodreads user named Bren, mentioned in the introduction of this essay, shelved Nabokov's Lolita as a classic, but rated the novel only 3 out of 5 stars. Though 3 stars is already a low rating, particularly within the Goodreads community, Okay, I got to start with two things. One is like the lengthy review. Now, it seems that this researcher is saying that like uh, negative ratings seem to demand lengthy reflexive justifications. Um, I think that's probably an oversimplification because uh, I think that when you're negatively reviewing a classic, uh, it it has a it takes a different tone than negatively reviewing a book that nobody else is going to fucking read. You know, when you have a book and like everybody has read it, um it you I think you're obligated if you're going to if you're going to review Lolita, I think you're obligated to say something about it. About Lolita or if you're not going to say that, I guess to say something about your opinion of Lolita. Um I think a classic you cannot review by sort of acting as if you're exposing people to a new material or like endorsing something that, uh, you know, I can be like, hey, Of Mice and Men is actually pretty good. Um, Old Man in the Sea, I enjoyed it. But overall, like, who needs that information? Nobody. So I, I do think the reviews end up being longer and they end up being longer in classics because uh, for my case... I think that uh, you have to have something to say. Like, reviewing a classic book is basically the truest test of a book reviewer's, like, do you have anything interesting to say about anything? Because uh, you're not going to convince someone to read this book, nor are you going to deter someone from reading this book. Also, um, nine times out of ten when we're talking about a classic, these are like free available books. So you're not going to save anyone any money, either. Um, the other thing is, three stars was already a low rating, particularly within the Goodreads community. I don't really agree with that. Goodreads is a five-star rating system. And if you look at kind of like their suggested, three stars means I liked it. Four is like I loved it. Five is best book ever. Two is not really my cup of tea. One is like did not like, would not recommend. I mean, three is better than average, better than half. 
if you stacked up every book in the world, um, you know, the two, the ones in the twos are ones that you would never want to read. And the threes are ones that you're like, eh, I'd give it a whirl. So I think, I think that's a misconception. And, you know, I've, I've heard this before, like authors getting upset because it's like, this person gave my book a three and it's like, yeah, they liked it. It didn't change their life. I mean, you should not expect your book to change somebody's life. Okay. Okay. Um, Bryn explained that she originally gave Lolita a higher rating in deference to its classic status, but as she watched over Goodreads users panning books, including Lolita, she gained new confidence to dissent from Lolita's perceived reputation and from its imagined community of fans, whom she dubbed book snobs. This retroactive rating is a triumphant moment that Bren jokingly compares to winning an Academy Award. Quote, This review is inspired by some of my Goodreads friends whose fearlessness about giving low stars to books they do not like has inspired me to change my rating of Lolita from three stars to two stars as that is what I really feel. I get that this is a classic and book snobs who read this will sigh in indignation, but I do not care. I just did not get it and still don't. I'd like to thank anti-book snobs everywhere for giving me the courage to rate Lolita two stars. I will never forget you. Wow, is this what an Oscar speech feels like? Uh, many Goodreads users like Bren seem to feel liberated when they reject the classics and expressed honest negative opinions about exalted books. When we reached out to Bren to seek her permission to publish this review, she further elaborated about what the Goodreads community means to her and even alluded to its special significance during the pandemic. There's something about speaking against a classic that can be very intimidating. People on here are fearless, and at least for me, I never feel judged. When I first joined, I was too shy to talk to people, but years later I have connected with wonderful people and it has become a wonderful source of comfort to me, especially in trying times like these. For Bren, the Goodreads community is sincerely meaningful and the ability to speak out against a classic is genuinely empowering. Um, I'm curious about Bren. I kind of want to see, like, I can go to the link. Maybe I can see what this person... I, I'm suspicious that Bren is a very young person, but maybe not. Oh, she doesn't look that young. I said that in a nice way, huh? I don't know. She's not. She doesn't appear young. She looks like a, you know, average, middle-aged, middle America kind of person. Um, she has a lot of friends on Goodreads, though. Almost a thousand. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the you know, the Goodreads community, quote-unquote, and all that stuff is not really something I care about. But also, like... Yeah, someone, if I don't like a classic and someone else really likes it, I, I'm not really here to fight with them about it. You know, I'm not really here to fight over what my opinion on something is because it's like, I mean, this is like trying to intellectually convince me that, um, you know, baked squash is delicious. And it's like, I, I don't think you can make an intellectual argument you know, you'll say, like, baked squash is not delicious, and someone will be like, it's so good for you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So are, like, a lot of other things. Um, did you just, did you purposely ignore what I was saying and say something else? Is that, did you just want to talk about how good for you it is? But whatever. 
So, you know, I don't know. I don't feel I don't feel like as connected to the community of Goodreads as this person. I mean, I've, you know, had a couple back and forths with people that were mostly pleasant. I don't know if I've ever had. Maybe there was one negative back and forth I've had on Goodreads. Um, early on, I was I read Jim Gaffigan's book. And I, w I in my review, I was like, you know, some of this was funny, but he spends a lot of time talking about how amazing his wife is and how they have like five kids and live in Manhattan, which is a crazy thing to do. Um, and part of me just felt like, well, I mean, fuck you. Like <laughs> you made a, you made a bad choice. Um, I would say you made a bad choice between three and, f uh, one to three times, you know, four to between three and five kids is where you could have changed your mind. Let, let's not do the math on this. Um, Basically, and, you know, I made a extended argument that I don't really remember, but was along the lines of, like, you know, when somebody chooses to have, like, uh, five kids, to have too many kids, I think it's, I think for a Jim Gaffigan, that's probably fine. You know, he's probably very wealthy. I'm sure his kids are well taken care of. Um, I don't think that's a problem. But, you know, I think about, like, for the most part, I think it's like, uh, people just make, that decision is up to you whether or not to have five kids. And I'm like, when you start having five kids, it does have an effect on the world that I don't know if it's an, a positive effect. So anyway, I got in a fight with a couple of people over that one. But at this point, I don't really fight with people anymore on there because it's just dumb. Because you just realize that like most people, um, I heard a quote about this the other day. It's kind of like uh, the ability to self-edit is now more important than the uh, the creativity of the person. Because basically you have to take anything you're going to say and then uh, think of any interpretation that any crazy ideologue might have about it. And, uh, you know, you have to be responsible for all of those interpretations. You know, so like when I say... Maybe having five kids isn't a great idea. And I think someone said, like, aren't you glad your mom didn't abort you? And I'm like, I mean, that's a leap. <laughs> that's a definitely a leap. But okay, whatever. Um, let's go back to the thing. Many Goodreads users like Bren seem to feel liberated when they reject the classics and express honest negative opinions about exalted books. Um, oh, we already did that. Another Goodreads user, Peter Dirk, reflected about the joys of publishing, quote, really nasty reviews of the classics, but his joy, unlike Bren's, was premised on the perceived powerlessness of his Goodreads review in the face of a classic. Every so often I'll get into a classic. I guess because I feel like writing a really nasty review. Classics are great fodder for nasty reviews because one, the people who made them are long dead, Saying bad stuff about a classic novel doesn't hurt the creator's feelings. Two, classics have such a pedestal in the literary world already that a, the opinion of one lone weirdo is pretty irrelevant. It's not like bashing on this book is suddenly going to render it not a classic or affect its sales. Frankly, I think that about everything I read, but with classics, it's a pretty rock-solid premise. Rather than an emboldened community taking on Lolita's classic reputation, as Bren framed herself in her Goodreads friends, Dirk describes himself as, quote, one lone weirdo 
who couldn't possibly make a dent in a classic book's reputation. Far from being able to hurt a classic sales, as Dirk acknowledges, his colorful, vehement 2,000-word takedown of The Phantom of the Opera likely only contributes to its contemporary value by contributing to its continued discussion. This paradox is one of the reasons that the classics remain so powerful. Love them or hate them, the classics sustain themselves by staying in print, remaining a topic of conversation, and enduring as a commodity. Um, yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I think that that's like a uh, an obvious irony that most people see about most um, things that are controversial. And by controversial, I mean there are arguments on different sides of them. You know, some people say like, this controversial material, just we shouldn't talk about it because talking about it gives it more spotlight. And uh, other people will say, no, we should try and suppress this material um, because that's talking about it, good or bad, you know, is giving it a platform. Um, you know, this is like the it's it's like the uh, common issue of trying to do a book ban where you try and ban a book. And what happens is your attempts to push the book down out of popular culture actually end up raising its capital in popular culture because it's the focus of so much discussion. I mean, those like six Dr. Seuss books could have probably been had for four bucks and then they become a huge topic of discussion and they're like $150 on eBay for a shitty copy, right? That's always going to be the thing. So there you go. I've been, I've been quoted. Um, and, uh, you know, the poll quote is one lone weirdo. <laughs> So I guess, you know, when you search EBSCO or whatever for Dirk, lone weirdo, uh, there I'll be. So that's some pretty exciting times, huh? All right, everybody. Well, that's our show for today. We had a uh, radio show. It was called the Helpful Snowman Radio, I guess. I don't know if it's the. I think it's just Helpful Snowman Radio. But uh, we did it. That's what matters. And uh, you did it by listening. Um, you can support me on Patreon, by the way. It's my goal to get like 10 people on there this year. So, uh, you know, do it. And uh, even if you're doing it already, see if you can con someone else into doing it. I'm obviously not effective at conning others into doing it, but maybe you will be. Maybe you'll be a real connie. And uh, I also have a bunch of t-shirts I made for sale. Oh, and two new books. Buy some stuff. Just buy. Click and buy and spend money. 